Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the 4,378th day of March, it's election shock therapy. <laughs> Welcome, guys. Sure does. As someone once said, like, wow, March was the longest year of my life. This is the March that never ends. And April. No, I, I, I April still looms out in the distance. Uh, we have not reached April yet. It's 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 a it's a turtle march. You know, like in like in the Witch of the Wardrobe, when it's always um, always winter and never Christmas. It's yep. always March yep. and never spring. That's what we're that's what we're living through yep. right now. Well, that's Minnesota in general. Yeah. It seems like. So. Yeah. Yes. True. COVID nineteen has stopped time. I don't know what else it's done, but it's 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 ended the linear flow of time. <laughs> Guys, um, I think my clock is off. Not just because of uh, a pandemic, but also because sort of the normal ebbs and flows of the semester and ebbs and flows of the political season have been uh, deeply sundered by this uh, this pandemic. Right. Yep. So I'm teaching online as you guys are. And we're approaching the end of the semester, but it doesn't feel like we're approaching this semester. It feels like I'm approaching the 18th week of spring break, and this feels weird. And um, but we're, cru- we're cruising into towards the end here, and the political campaigns are also mostly shut down. So um, it feels a little bit to talk about this, but we do have a little bit of polling data to discuss. And so we're going to kind of move into immediately into speed round for this uh, election shock therapy. We have four topics. We want to hit them quick, check in with people, give them something to pay attention to, and then um, and then we're going to get out of here. So this will be a little bit shorter podcast for our listeners. Uh, topic one, I feel like I'm on the McLaughlin group here. Um our presidential uh, – that got a laugh out of our producer, Sam, who um, um, who <laughs> for anybody who's under the age of 50, John McLaughlin. Oh. <laughs> Never mind. Um, uh, issue one that is – sorry, I'll get back on track here. Issue one is presidential swing states. Uh, we, we could tell you right now between uh, uh, Bramson and, uh, and Kukum and I – Basically, how about 38 states in the country are going to vote? We could probably get for sure 35, right? Just for sure. Like, I can tell you right now uh, <clears throat> that whoever wins is a Democrat, and it's going to be Joe Biden, but um, he's going to win California. He's right. going to win New York. No um, crystal ball necessary. So. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. Donald Trump is going to win Mississippi. He's going to win Alabama. Um and we could, and then we sort of just walk towards more and more highly contested states. When we get down to it, there's only about somewhere between a dozen and eight states that are really going to be highly competitive in the presidential election. So, first of all, guys, who are some of those states? Well, uh, there's there's Florida and there's North Carolina, um, mm-hmm. there's Arizona, and then you get the string of Midwestern states. Ohio is not as much in play as it used to be. It seems to be tilting a little bit more um, towards the red side of things, yep. um, but you certainly um, get um, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin um, yep. are a few of the other key swing states. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are probably, also- they're probably the biggest ones. 
Would you yeah. include Virginia in that group? Mm-hmm. Maybe, but kind of like Ohio is starting wow. to lean more red. Virginia is starting to lean more blue. Um, okay. So I think they're a little less uh, swingier <laughs> than they used to be. So Fair. Okay. Um, how, Minnesota might be more interesting than Virginia, but we'll see. Yeah, Hillary Clinton won Minnesota by eighty thousand votes back in twenty sixteen. Yeah. It was, the it was really close for a while. So yeah. Um, how about how about Pennsylvania? We are we putting Pennsylvania in the swing states? Yeah, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. sure. Iowa, I throw in there as well. Okay. Yet. Um, yep. Who else? Nevada. Know, Colorado, but again, they kind of remain pretty blue. Nevada for sure. Okay. Um, I think we've hit most of them. I think okay. Missing the obvious one. So thinking about those states, some of them are geographically contiguous to each other. So we talk about uh, the Midwestern states. Hillary Clinton referred to those as her blue wall in uh, 2016. And that wall came crashing down as Donald Trump picked up states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio and, and Michigan. And that carried him to the presidency. Likewise, there's a couple of southern states that are in play, uh, Florida and, and North Carolina, and there have been there have been rumblings inside the Democratic Party about well, um, maybe a few other states could be come into play depending on Donald Trump and depending on Joe Biden and depending on maybe even who Joe Biden picks as his vice president. Uh, but could there be any other states this cycle that might be worth paying attention to that aren't swing states yet, but to use your term, Matt, could get swingy. Yeah, I mean, you get some discussion about, um, you know, what if what if Texas went for Democrats, for example, or other such some discussions like that. And I think if you get states that haven't been swing states um, start to vote differently than how they've voted in the past 20 or 30 years of presidential elections, that means a lot of the swing states are also going that way, too, in which case you have a landslide. So, yeah, um, you, okay. you could get weird scenarios in which, you know. You know, Trump loses Texas, for example, but wins Minnesota. But those are really bizarre, almost outlier type scenarios. Right. Um, so I think, you know, if you have, you know, these, you know, relatively safe seats that might be moving towards the other party all of a sudden or safe states moving towards the other party at some point, um, you're all your swing states are going to go along with them. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And any world. It's hard to say. Any world in which uh, Joe Biden wins Texas is also a world in which he wins Minnesota in the same election. It's hard to imagine that splitting. Um, Andy, are there other swingy states that you might pay attention to? No, I I think we've named most of them. I mean, New Mexico's been another one that people like to watch, but I just really Mm, think they're pretty blue. Um, So it's hard to see, you know, what would shift that would would make that. But I mean, I, you know, I think we should know. Like, we were surprised last time. I think you're not really, not many people thought Pennsylvania or Michigan were really going to be in play, and, and Trump did pull off wins in those places. So, um, you know, I think we have to be braced for that. But it's not clear to me where that surprise would be at this point. Um, yeah, and yeah, so we could be looking is supportive of you know Biden's doing better in the swing states, but it's again very early. Yeah, I mean, it could be end up being pretty close in the Electoral College again. And you could even see another Electoral College um, popular vote split if Trump wins. In fact, that's what would probably happen if Trump won Electoral College. Right. There's a good chance he would lose the, the popular vote. Trump really doesn't have a whole lot of room for error at this point. Yeah. Now, a lot, now here's, the, here's two big hand-wringing things that we should point out. One, we're about six months away from the election. 
Yep. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of a unprecedented historic economic collapse. <laughs> we don't know what the shape of that economic collapse is going to be. Meaning we don't know that if we get back to work quickly and the virus is dealt with quickly, if the economy will spring right back or we're entering into a long period of economic uh, decline uh, followed by some long economic recovery. We just don't know any of that. So there's a lot to, there's a lot to answer for here, but early on, there is some evidence in some of these swing states that Joe Biden has an early but statistically significant lead on Donald Trump. So in places like Wisconsin and uh, Michigan, uh, his lead is somewhere between three and five points, which is not huge. But if that lead would hold in some of those swing states, we would say that the race looks pretty good for Joe Biden. But a lot has to happen. And we don't have polling in all of the swing states. Um and some states, are North Carolina, for example, and Ohio, there's just not, there hasn't been any good polling on presidential uh, um, approval ratings in a while. So we, we don't know much there. Yep. But that leads us, and I'm going to keep us moving here, but that leads us to our second topic, which is, uh, I'll, I'll make this even more pointed. Uh, Joe Biden has announced that he will have his vice presidential pick by July. That's a lot later than some people expected. Some people thought that he might roll out a pick earlier. Um, and But he's going to go through kind of the traditional longer vetting process. This sort of lines up with his, with kind of the typical vice presidential selection cycle, where you would kind of roll out the vice president a little bit before the, um, the convention. It's not even clear what the a convention will look like this year, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but this is sort of later in that regard. But, one of the one thing we know with almost with almost ninety nine percent certainty is that Joe Biden's vice presidential selection is going to be a woman. He he, he announced he, he pledged it would be a woman uh, during the uh, primary campaign, and so there'd be huge costs to to breaking that pledge. Yep. Who are some of the names that people should pay attention to between now and July as the Veep stakes goes along? Uh, well, there's a bunch of senators. Um, mm -hmm. There's uh, Harris and Klobuchar and Warren, of course. All of feels like they were all just running for president, isn't that? Yes, right? they were. Uh -huh. um, so probably Klobuchar and Warren being probably top tier. Harris as well, perhaps. Um, Gretchen Whitmer, the um, Democratic governor from the state of Michigan, although she's kind of in hot water right now. So we'll we'll see. We'll see if she would be an asset, um, but she certainly seems to be gunning for um, gunning for it, along with some of the others. Um, also, Stacey Abrams, a um, a state legislative leader um, in Georgia, or former mm -hmm. leader, I should say. Um, yep. Also, um, there uh, one name that's being floated around, probably not top tier, is Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada, um, another mm -hmm. senator as well. Um, so those six are probably your your top contenders at this point. There might be others that I'm missing, but. Um, I would, you know, I bet 20 bucks on, on, uh, his VP pick being from amongst that group. So, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, that's, a, that's a very good guess. And I, I will say too, like with the July thing, I think that actually is really smart. by Biden yeah. to wait for them. Um, Why is that? Well, like for no other reason then it, it feels reasonably possible that in July he can actually stand on the same stage with this person, whoever she mm. is. Um, and I can only, I cannot imagine how, like much of a kind of loss it is in terms of sort of this, the drama, if, if the vice presidential announcement happens on zoom, right. Or, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. it seems so like here I am in my basement and here's Kamala Harris in her basement. Right? <laughs> no, don't do that. Yeah, exactly. you know, so, 
Um, yeah. I think that's that's a factor. And I just don't see him mean, like it's not like this person can be out there campaigning right now anyway. So yeah. what's the upside to doing it early? Wait to get closer. People's attention spans are famously not focused on this right. in normal times, and these are not normal times. People are even less focused on politics. So I think that's smart. True. Um, yep. I agree with Matt's list. I think those people are all probably in the conversation. I think two of them are disasters. If he goes that path, um, I think Whitmer and Abrams would both be really bad picks. Oh, interesting. Um, Why is Whitmer, that? Whitmer, because I just think the press has been horrible with her handling of the coronavirus. Um, and so if, if he's looking for somebody to help him carry Michigan, I am not at all, at all convinced she's going to be helpful. And I think she raises hackles elsewhere. Um, and Abrams, I know he's getting a lot of pressure to name an African-American woman. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest. Like Joe Biden is 77 years old and Abrams' highest office is the minority leader of the Georgia House, right? Like that is not something that says I'm ready to be president, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you need somebody who says I'm ready to be president. I mean, so honestly, like this is what I'm called Abrams. So I do think it's very capable in a way, but... Um, but I mean, it feels like a Sarah Palin pick, right? Like you, and you can't make that when you're a, a guy in your seventies, um, who's running for president, right? You need somebody who people feel confident about, um, Klobuchar, Harris and Warren have all been vetted through the process. I think there's different upsides and downsides to each of them. Um, and, but I think, you know, they're people that were, it's plausible. Um, I think Abrams, it's really problematic for that reason. I think it's great. And there's a couple others who've been mentioned who kind of fall in that same category, like Val Demings. I just think this is not a person who's like clearly ready to be president. And if they're not clearly ready and you're 77, they should not be part of the conversation. Yeah, and this might be a, a time in which the VP pick plays a little bit of a bigger role um, than it usually does. Usually VP picks don't really make that much of a difference. They might help you pick mm-hmm. up a key mm-hmm. state, um, right. you know, mm-hmm. in a region where that VP is from. Um, they might bring in sort of an outside group um, or make a certain constituency feel a little bit more comfortable, but it doesn't tend to fundamentally change the way most people vote. And it probably won't here. However, um, everyone does know that, you know, Biden is, is, is way up there and he's in age. In age. Yeah. Yeah. Likely to be a one-term president. Um, And, and he's, you know, and his mental deterioration is, is tangible. Right. And so, and so I think a lot of people, um, especially if you're a Democrat, thinking strategically, like we want to keep the White House for for you know more than four years. Who are we going to pick? Who's going to be um, a capable um, replacement for Biden whenever he steps down and passes on the torch, so to speak? Um, and that's going to be in the back of the minds of a lot of a lot of people. And even people who aren't part of the you know squarely in the Democratic Party are going to think like, well. You know, who who would I want um, to to replace Biden? Someone who has, you know, some basic degree of competence um, and who, you know, would be capable of doing the job or someone who has very little experience, um, who isn't used to sort of national level sort of limelight and pressure. We should yeah. say that there has been some uh, public opinion polling on this. And it's not particularly helpful. Uh, the front runners um, are people like um, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. Uh, Amy Klobuchar is kind of in the next batch, along with Stacey Abrams and, wait for it, Hillary Clinton. So what this tells us is less <laughs> about the plausibility of a vice presidential pick and more about name recognition. And that should, yep. be, so, that should be sobering for any political scientists because uh, this um, 
even though we've gone through a whole primary process, there are still a lot of Americans who are barely aware of who is running for president and not well familiar with some of the people who dropped out like early, like Kamala Harris. Right. True. Right. And I think <clears throat> rule with vice presidential nominees do no harm to the ticket. Right? Yep. Um, and so I think there's always like Sarah Palin is an interesting data point here, right? I mean, like McCain picked her because he wanted a splashy candidate. You know, uh, he wanted a woman, honestly. Um, he wanted somebody who could connect with the Christian right, right, which he was an awkward messenger to. And in some senses, she did those things, right? But she also raised a lot of concerns about, you know, competence, right? Like, was this person ready to be president of the States? And especially when you had a you know, 72-year-old with a history of cancer, right? Like, that's a huge, huge question. Sure. Um, and so I think, you know, in the end, she harmed him more than she helped him. And that's what you want to avoid. I mean, you, you do not want the story of the election to be about the vice president. If that is the, if that is the situation, it doesn't go well for you, right? Right. So ultimately, you need this person to, you know, be reassuringly competent, and mostly people don't think about him or her. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and in that way, Trump did a good job picking Mike Pence, yeah. who, ex- who exuded competence and was – Yep. Very, uh, very bland and yep. very good at being bland, which is exactly what you needed <laughs> on that ticket. Yep. Um, yeah. All right. So pay attention to that. We don't have a lot to say yet. We probably won't know a lot for a while. So we're not going to come back to that topic anytime in the future here. But we are going to transition now to, um, since we don't have much to talk about in terms of the election, in terms of some of the public policy questions surrounding uh, responses in the United States to the coronavirus. And the first one, and this come, I'm going to throw this immediately over to Matt. But Matt, you had some thoughts on the public policy implementation surrounding uh, the PPP program, which is the uh, large uh, bank pool of money being given to banks to loan money to small businesses. There's a lot of yeah, criticisms so, about this. Yeah, yeah. So I'll say something about the um, the PPP program and also the unemployment benefits that came from the CARES Act. Um, and all of this, of course, ties into, you know, electoral politics because um, the state of the economy um, and people's sort of financial security or their sense of financial security can have a big impact um, upon how they vote. Um, and especially um, in how people tend to link their own economic security and well-being and that of the country um, with the uh, performance of political leaders, especially the president. So this this has a real sort of electoral sort of impact in the long run. What it will be is, is of course, not known at this point. Um, but of course, um, one of the things that um, I've been discussing with my uh, policy, uh, public policy class is some of the difficulties in rolling out um, excuse me, I'm getting pinged on Discord by a friend. <laughs> the joys of working from home. Um, wait, wait, isn't um, Discord the social media app for video game streaming? Yeah, but like my church, <laughs> a, but my church has like a Discord um, um, channel as well, which is we know we know you're playing World of Warcraft. We know you're we know uh, we know you're like a 14th level mage. Come on, uh, yeah, exactly. Your church, I just I think there's something weird about church being on Discord. I know. I like, yeah, wait a second. <laughs> Should it be on Con- like Concord or something like that? Yeah. yeah exactly. Or Accord or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> this is what happens when you record podcasts from your home office. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or my bedroom. Exactly. Okay. So you were okay, talking so about the implementation. Okay. So the PPP program is um, 
um, it has to do with a paycheck is called it's the paycheck protection program and it's a relatively blunt policy instrument and i've been talking about this with my public policy class and basically there's um there's some difficulties in making sure that the program is being used by the sorts of small businesses that Congress um, wanted it um, to support. So I have here in my hands, literally, the application for the PPP program. Mm -hmm. And it's it's short, it, it, it succeeds in being like short and vague all at the same time. Um, basically, there's one line in this whole application I know you can't see it here on the podcast, but it's, it's highlighted here. One line of the whole application form that pertains to the economic efforts of, or the economic effects of the pandemic and the shutdown. And, and, the, and it reads like this, quote, current economic uncertainty makes this loan request necessary to support ongoing operations of the, of the applicant, end quote. Mm -hmm. Basically, anything can count as economic uncertainty. So if your business is in any way impacted by COVID-19 and the shutdowns, you can apply for this thing and get money. Yep. Now, the application and the process of the government setting the size of the loan does not take into account the extent of the loss or the risk of loss that a company will actually experience. And mm -hmm. so basically what this means is that any company can apply for a loan um, as long as it meets this sort of very broad parameter. And moreover, as long as they maintain their payroll for 60 days, they can ask for the loan to be forgiven. And there's no built-in, so basically there's no incentive to actually pay back the loan. Um, and there's no wording in the application, unlike what you see in other sorts of government assistance programs, there's no wording in the application that prohibits people from taking advantage of the system. So basically it's creating a system of legalized fraud. Um, it also creates some um, other difficulties as well. Um, because it's really, vague and broad. It allows all business, all sorts of businesses to apply for it, including chain restaurants. And so you get some restaurants like restaurant chains like Shake Shack and Ruth's Chris applying for it. And of course they can apply for it legally. They meet the requirements. Um, and they've actually been negatively impacted by the crisis. Um, and they meet the broad rules for eligibility, but now they become the target of the collective outrage, you might say, of various politicians, media outlets, and citizens um, who think that this loan was designed to help so-called small businesses. Um, but of course, small businesses is nowhere actually defined. It's um, very explicitly. And so basically what happened is Congress throws together a half-baked plan that was designed nonetheless to be very broad and inclusive and relatively quick to implement. And the trade-off is that in creating these broad rules, you can't create a targeted solution. And so you have companies using the system in a way that um, was sort of not meant to be used. Of course, because Congress didn't specify and create a, a specific type of rule. They didn't design the law well. Um, yeah. So this you know, shows something about you know, the, the problems of ramming through laws really quickly um, that aren't sort of well-crafted. Also shows the trade-offs between having sort of broad and inclusive rules that allow for more people to take advantage of the system, um, but how that in turn um, it means that you aren't taking a targeted approach and you might actually deplete the overall money that's available because now you have more businesses that can actually take advantage of the system. Yeah, yeah and this is just a kind of recurring issue, I think, with when you try to respond, I mean, as you said, when you try to do it too quickly, right? I mean, and there's reasons why we did it too too quickly because this is a crisis, right? And and you can't afford it right, to, to address the crisis, but it, you know, when you're trying to spend that kind of money in that short of time without any, you know, really building oversight and defining terms well, 
um, it does create a lot of waste and indeed even fraud, right? And we saw some of this um, with the Great Recession in 2008. I think it's this is going to turn out to be much worse, right? Um, just because the amount of money we're throwing at it is worse, and already the economic impact is worse. Now, what we don't know, as Chris said earlier, is whether the bounce back will be quicker. Um, that's yeah. where we're sitting in you know, early May of 2020. Yeah, and we and we just don't know that yet. Let me. Um, you guys have been pretty critical of this, and I think I generally agree with your criticism of this. At the same time, let me put on my uh, bright, shiny, uh, the sky is, uh, the glass is always half full jacket um, and make a case for this. And my case basically is me channeling the ghost of John Maynard Keynes, right? So um, most, uh, most modern uh, liberal democracies now are really functioning off of some kind of broad Keynesian sense of economics, which is that the government should intervene in the economy in situations where uh, the economy is starting to get uh, gummed up, is starting to get, uh, basically there's a cash flow, uh, there's a um, capital flow problem in the economy. Think about macroeconomics here. And so the government's, uh, government's role is to inject uh, capital into the economy in ways that essentially ungum the gears of the economy and get it going. Yeah. In that regard, what the government is doing and also what it did in 2009, is just dump a bunch of money into the economy. Now, the, ra the rationale there is, yeah, there might be some graft, there might be some fraud, there might be some misuse, and some of this money might not be spent wisely. Who cares? Uh, because at the end of the day, it's more important that we get a bunch of money into the system rather than uh, um, try and target it. And yes, we're just going to live with a certain level of fraud or graft. Yeah. Uh, let me give an example here, and I'm I, I, this is a very personal example, but uh, my um, I'm part of two different nonprofits, um, both of whom successfully applied for PPP loans, and both of whom were grant were, who grant, were granted money to help cover payroll in the short term. These are these are nonprofits, and they're doing excellent work. But at the same time, they're not small businesses in a traditional sense. They are using the money in a non-fraudulent way. They're using it for employee payroll, and they're, and they're responding to a perceived sense of economic uncertainty. But is this really what the PPP loan was intended for? Are they really small businesses providing commercial goods to the, to the, to the, to the country? Not exactly. They're fulfilling a social good. Um, and I would say in this regard, this, is this the intent of the law? No. Am I okay with it? Absolutely. And not just because I'm personally invested in those nonprofits, but because I, I think that uh, I think this is part of the sort of the Keynesian idea of like, let's just get some money in the system, keep the things afloat we want to keep afloat, keep people sort of spending money and, and paying their employees so their employees can spend money so that when the economy rebounds, people are able to get back to normal consumptive lifestyles, uh, which keep the economy going. Um, yeah. I, I completely agree with that, but a Keynesian could also point out that, um, well, let me back up. I, I agree um, that there you know, could be a place or is a place for injecting money in the economy, and you can agree with that premise. But at the same time, um, if you're a politician who throws together a law that is very vague, um, mm -hmm. you shouldn't be outraged and surprised when, in fact, all these other entities pile on and take advantage of it yes. and then exactly. have the gall to go out and criticize them and shame them publicly right. for their behavior um, and then blame it on them and say, like, well, it's the fault of these evil, um, greedy businesses. Like, exactly. Oh, they're, exactly. They're just, 
they're just using um, this this benefit that you basically put out there for basically anyone to use, right? Um, so, no, I completely agree with that. There's hypocrisy on both sides of this. If you can't create basically a giant slush fund for for businesses in the United States and then be offended when some of those businesses take advantage of it, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and so and so that's why yeah there there might be a place for creating you know very sort of broad. Um, you know, broad rules that allow, you know, more people to take advantage of, of the slush fund. However, you make it broader, that means more can take advantage and that slush fund gets depleted sooner, which means that the businesses that you really wanted to help most, um, because there's more than Keynesian economics here, you're, you're thinking about, you know, small businesses that are more vulnerable and you want to help them out, right? That's another principle. And then you might, you know, accomplish injecting more money into the economy, but then you're not, you're not as a, efficiently accomplishing the more specific goal of helping out certain sorts of businesses. Exactly. Yep. And I think that what I, well, at least what I hope, and we, we saw a real um, heartening level of bipartisanship with these first couple rounds of economic stimulus. My sense is that that economics, that that part of bipartisanship is, is a wasting asset. And the longer we go and the closer we get to the 2020 election, uh, bipartisanship is going to evaporate, which is unfortunate because <laughs> there's not much bipartisanship in the original discussion, but okay, go ahead. Well, no, no, I mean, in the sense, uh, in the, the, the passage of these first couple rounds of economic stimulus were, were broadly supported by both parties. And yeah. what, what, what's, what's going to need to happen in the next couple of rounds, and there will be a couple more rounds, I think, of economic stimulus, is they will have to be more thoughtful. They will have to be more targeted. Um, and that's going to be increasingly hard, both as they become more specific, more oxes get gored, but also as we get closer to the election, there's going to be less incentive for Democrats and Republicans to work together. Um, and I, that's a real cause of concern. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, you know, and whenever, you know, there's, there's a crisis, um, you know, you're thankful that a crisis, you know, brings people together to try to act quickly. However, in acting quickly, sometimes they forget that uh, as public policymakers are often want to do, they forget that the laws that they that they create um, can structure incentives in, in weird ways that ultimately backfire. So the second thing I'm going to bring up, this is kind of an awkward segue, is um, the um, incentives that are created by the, the, the CARES Act unemployment checks. And so what you have right now is as businesses have the opportunity to reopen or restructure their business model, they need to hire back more workers. So the CARES Act, which is the most recent stimulus bill, basically gives furloughed employees $600 a week in the form of federal pandemic unemployment compensation checks. And this is on, on top of the unemployment benefits that they already receive from their state governments. And so this means that workers in many states actually receive over $1,000 a week for not working. And so for a 40 hour a week, that translates to over $25 an hour. Businesses are finding they can't hire people back <laughs> because yep. they, even at in states that have relatively high minimum wage of like $15 or more an hour, people will not go back to work when if they can stay home, not work and make $25 an hour. It's, it's just an, a rational incentive for people. And it yep. turns out that this benefit for um, receiving these compensation checks goes until July 31st. And so for the next two or three months, a lot of people will understandably have very little incentive to return back to work. Um, and so not only, so this does a couple of things, this makes the whole program a lot more expensive and it also exacerbates the ability of businesses to actually reopen, even if they are able to, uh, safely. 
even mm -hmm. if they do have business. Um, and so again, and, and actually some of the senators back when this was being debated actually um, said that this is going to be a problem. Um, and again, this is just another prime example of how policymakers sometimes fail to understand how laws structure incentives and can change behavior in unexpected and counterproductive ways. Yep. Another thing we've been talking about, my public policy. <laughs> That's a really nice analysis. This, so. um, no, and that makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense, and it it does show. It, it marries with the next with the other with the next topic we kind of want to transition to here a little bit is the process of reopening. Yep. And by July 31st, I think things will look a lot different. Um, wait, did I just say July 31st? You did. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay. Uh, what day were you going to go with? <laughs> what's that? What day were you going to go with? Um, the, 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 I mean, I just by the end of July. Let's let's leave it there. I don't want to be, I don't want to be that specific. But by uh, by the by the end of July, sort of as we're sort of thinking about, can we get back to uh, can we, can we as Bethel get back to school? Um, and what's that going to look like? Uh, a lot of people are going to start to have a lot of conversations about what their return to uh, some, some level of the new normal is going to look like. And what we've been struck by over the course of the last few weeks is a real sense of sort of fatigue associated with, uh, with, with quarantining and sheltering in place. Cell phone data, which is used to track people's movements, have shown upticks in travel. People are essentially growing weary of staying in their homes, and they're starting to move around more uh, collectively. And that is an issue for the spread of the pandemic. And uh, the again, we're not epidemiologists on this uh, podcast, but... Uh, most ep epidemiological models suggest that we're still either approaching at the crest of or just past the crest of the pandemic. And if people start to move around and start to ignore shelter-in-place recommendations, well, basically, the last couple of months will have been mostly for naught. What, will, what it will have accomplished will have pushed back down the road, um, potentially overwhelming hospitals. Um, and that's what we really need to do first was make sure the hospitals didn't get overwhelmed so that they had to go into triage mode. And we've mostly avoided that in most places. And that's a real achievement. But now we want to make sure that we're not hitting that again uh, sometime in July um, or at some point in the future. I don't think we can continue to shelter in place long enough to acquire a vaccine or something or some sort of permanent solution to the coronavirus. We're just sort of trying to mitigate the, the, the fatalities of it. But there's some interesting data about how public perception uh, is moving toward in this, uh, um, in this reopening process. So even as I've said that people are starting to grow fatigued and weary of, of, um, of, 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 uh, of, of sheltering in place, they also have a lot of, uh, concerns about reintegrating within society. So um, from a recent Washington Post University of Maryland poll that just came out yesterday, 56% uh, of Americans said they were comfortable going to a grocery store, but only 56%, 44% said they were still uncomfortable doing that. Um, uh, six, and it gets worse from there. 67% said they were uncomfortable going to a clothing store. And 78% said they were uncomfortable eating out in a restaurant. So this is, this is even if we lift restrictions, these are people being genuinely concerned about doing the kinds of things that are going to be necessary to get the economy up and running again, right? And Andy, you referred to this as trauma, 
you want to talk a little bit about what, how, what, sort of how you're modeling, how you're thinking about this sort of uh, public opinion reticence to re-engage? Yeah, I mean, I think you know one thing, we've been just been barraged for the last almost two months now with a lot of fear, right? Some of it grounded in very real things. Some of it probably overblown, right? Um, in the ways it's been expressed to us and, and just the, you know, yeah, the, the impression we've gotten. And so I think everyone's just been, you know, they kind of told us, oh, yeah, this is so dangerous. Don't go out. Don't touch. Don't get anywhere near people. Don't go into food. And you'll just turn around and overcome that in a second, right? And now it's some level traumatized a lot of people, not everyone, right? But, um, you know, and that, that means that it's going to be very hard for them to turn that off, right? I mean, so mm-hmm. I don't pr- particularly feel all that traumatized, and I think I will actually be one of the, the 22% who's willing to go to a restaurant. <laughs> but, but I said that, like, I, I just think of that when I go to, say, Aldi, right? And realize, like, how different my shopping patterns are, right? That I, you know, normally I just go in and I shop. Shameless plug for Aldi here, by the way. Yeah, right. And I think about the things I'm going to buy and the deals I'm trying to get and, you know, my list and so forth. And now it's like, I'm thinking about that, but I'm also having this really self-conscious, like, I need to stay away from people, right? And so it's like this maze of you're trying to dot, like, get to the goods you want, but dodge the people who are also there trying to get the goods they want, right? Um, And that's just one small example of how it affects our thought patterns. And what's not clear to me is how quickly we can turn those things off, right? Once we say, oh, this is not really necessary anymore. Um, but you're still going to go into all these and the, the, you know, they're, they're that equivalent is in your life, right? And and be thinking in those terms, right? So I think it uh, this is the danger of you know, when you single-mindedly focus on one thing and you hammer it home, um, there's a lot of side effects. And this is one of them is you know, how, how long will it take us to get over this kind of, this kind of trauma? Yeah. And, yep, and media and, has a very powerful, powerful effect on how we view the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's not to say that there is a danger out there. I mean, taking appropriate precautions makes sense, you know, social distancing, um, you know, uh, quite severe social distancing, especially initially when, you know, the risks were on, were, you know, it, the, the data was, was, you know, thinner um, certainly makes sense, but, you know, but now that, you know, we, we have a, a you know, somewhat better sense of, of, of the risk level and the actual death rate. Um, you can't just people, people, we are not fundamentally rational human beings, right? Um, that's something that um, some social t- scientists, you know, sort of assume is that we are fundamentally rational ath- actors, always, you know, doing some sort of cold, hard sort of cost benefit calculus. And yeah. that's not how human beings operate. Um, mm-hmm. Human beings um, are very risk adverse. Um, you can make impressions upon them um, and these sort of sort of mental, emotional, intuitional sort of responses can can stick with people for a very long time. Yep. And I unfortunately, I'm, well, not, I agree with you all. And I lamented this last time is the irrationality of humans and our susceptibility to being primed um, yep. on uh, issues of danger and being and risk aversion. But unfortunately, something else that I was worried about has also come to pass, which is the pr- the public policy surrounding both the shelter-in-place orders and quarantines and also their lifting has started to become pretty deeply partisan. Yep. Now, we've already seen some protests in Midwestern states, including Minnesota, but also Michigan and elsewhere, with groups of people protesting sort of uh, stay-at-home orders and um, right. Those, those protests don't match general public sentiments. Uh, stay-at-home orders generally are still publicly accepted, but we're seeing a real sharp emergence of a partisan divide. And so I just want to show you this real quick. Um, in that same Washington Post, University of Maryland poll, 
um, a majority of Americans continue to support the closure of businesses like golf courses, clothing stores, barber shops, hair salons, gun stores, dine-in restaurants, nail salons, gyms, and movie theaters, places where people congregate. And I don't know about you, I could certainly use a haircut right now, but I'm not interested in going to a barber at this point. Um, Your hair looks good, Chris. I don't know what you're talking I, about. My hair is um, <laughs> is a thing. Okay. Um, but, uh, but here's the thing. So all those a majority of Americans support keeping all of those places closed. But if you actually disaggregate the respondents by their Democratic or Republican leanings, and so we're taking both people who say they're Democrats, people who say they're Republicans, but also independents who kind of lean one way or the other and put them into two groups, basically in all of those different uh, groups, it's, it's, it's like magic. There's a 30 point gap between Republicans and Democrats. So just to take, for example, Golf courses, uh, Republican leaning, uh, 61% of them uh, um, support opening, but only 30% support opening if you're a Democrat. Likewise, uh, barber shops, I'm going to skip a few things, barber shops here, 48% uh, of Republicans say open it up, 15% of Democrats say open it up. Right. So um, one more gun stores, 49% uh, of Republicans say open them up. So apparently a slightly larger percentage of Republicans want to get a gun as opposed to a haircut. Um, that's just a joke. I'm that's not, <laughs> but um, at 14% of, of, of Democrats want to open them up. Uh, gyms, 40% of, of, Dem of Republicans, 10% of Democrats. So this is this 30 point gap. And I think this is really sort of being primed. I'm sorry, not primed, framed by the president. The president has been very interested in getting, getting these uh, businesses back open again. And this is just reflecting sort of partisan antipathy or sympathy with the commander in chief. Yep. Yeah, a couple couple of things on that is, I mean, we there's increasing evidence, um, even apart from the the pandemic, um, that um, that we have an ideological divide in which people not only have different opinions, but they have, in some ways, different perceptions of what reality actually is. Right. Um, so you know, our side has our truth, and the other side has you know their their truth. Right. Um, and so I think that's part of what's playing playing in here. However. Um, the, the difference in sort of perceptions of a reality, even though there's some truth to that, I'd be curious um, if you were able to mine down in this data, and the data set definitely isn't big enough to be able to do this, but to actually um, look at sort of the, ge to con control for geography, um, because mm. it turns out that there's also studies that show that, you know, if you, you can just look at a map, I mean, most, um, most of the COVID cases are in, are in, on the coasts, which are more democratic and in large urban areas, which are more democratic. A lot of, you know, Republicans live in areas in which COVID-19 is simply far less of a, of a real issue. Right. Yeah, I mean, true. I think that's, that's also, so this isn't merely the data set. It is only showing one aspect of, of this divide. True. Very true. Yeah, yeah, I, point, I mean, the, the ideological divide maps onto the urban rural, Yep. And, and as you say, the urban rural is very relevant for um, COVID, right? Yep. So, yeah. Absolutely. That's yeah. A, that's so so really these two point. things are reinforcing, and that's why I think you see such a, a stark difference um, in the chart that you were referring to, Chris. No, I think that's true. And although this is a statistically reliable uh, group, it's not a huge sample. This is a sample of about 500 um, uh, U.S. adults. So this right. is, it's not enormous. Yeah, which is certainly good enough um, to give a rough estimate of Republicans versus Democrats, but it's way too small if you want to start controlling for other factors such as geography. Yep, exactly. exactly. You need a few thousand at minimum. 
um, yep. to do that with to create numbers that have you know any sort of statistical significance. No, that's a good point. Well, guys, this has been fun. We promise we keep it short. I'm going to hold us to that promise. So um, thanks for uh, dialing in. Uh, we're going to get be back in your feed next week. And if there – I'll just put this tease out there. How's this? If we don't have any uh, real political developments on the election front to deal with and the no big public policy shifts in terms of the pandemic, um, we might do something a little bit wackier. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> <laughs> You can always get in touch with us um, at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, guys, before we sign off, uh, do you have any uh, pop culture recommendations, things you're reading? A Andy, I saw you completed your book challenge. Congratulations. Yeah. And I just finished um, another epic Sharon K. Penman book, The Land Beyond the Sea, which is about the um, the kingdom of Jerusalem before the, the – um, Muslims took back over Jerusalem in 1187, something like the 15 years leading up to that. It was really good. So nice. For a 650-page historical fiction read, I recommend it. The Land Beyond the Sea. The Land Beyond the Sea. It's part of right. Excellent. Either of you watching the Jordan documentary? No. Oh, dang it. Okay, well, what, you're, you're the sports guy, Chris. You needed so. the 252 on Thursday for some discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks. Uh, Matt, you got any recommendations? From pop culture? Are you <laughs> kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, in that case. Barking up um, the wrong tree, Chris. Come on. All right. Okay. Well, in that case, uh, I'll, I'll just say thanks for listening. Um, you can always get a hold of us um, also at channel3900 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And until we're back in your feed, go Royals. <laughs>